Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're picking up our text at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3 today, where Paul says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. If you know the story of Acts, Paul had been arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem, but he'd been sent to Rome in chains because as a Roman citizen, he had invoked his legal right to appeal to Caesar. Now, you must understand that even in Acts 19 verse 21, before Paul got to Jerusalem, he had already said that after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, I'm not sure if he expected to be going to Rome as a prisoner, but even so, Paul wouldn't have been put off had he known that, because in the end, he saw himself as being in Christ's hand. He never saw himself as being Rome's prisoner, but rather a prisoner to Christ's will to spread the gospel. And you know, that's a real challenge for you and I, isn't it? To be content in every circumstance, to trust that Christ has us there for a reason, and to see how we can use what happens to us to spread the gospel. Paul shared the gospel with the Roman gods who were chained to him. And as you know, many of them came to faith in Christ as a result. So his circumstances were really ultimately used for good. Now, I'm sure you've already linked Ephesians 3 verse 1 to verse 14 in the text, but if you didn't do that last time, do it now, because Paul starts to say something in verse 1, but then it's as if his thoughts get carried away, and he says a whole lot more before eventually getting back to that original thought when he gets to verse 14. So we're going to look at verse 2 through 13 now, remembering that this is almost like an aside in the middle of his original thought. Let's begin, though, from verse 1, just for sake of flow. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power." 
You have to remember that some of those who would have had this letter read to them would not have met Paul when he was living in Ephesus. And so Paul says here that those reading or hearing this letter may have heard that God had made him a type of special steward of God's grace to the Gentiles. Now, we know that Paul really did share the gospel with his fellow Jews, but he was really called to preach the good news to the Gentiles. And so in that sense, he was a special steward of God's grace that was to be shown to them. God had entrusted Paul with a special dispensation of grace that was specifically for the Gentiles. God had revealed the mystery to Paul that the Gentiles would be included as part of God's people because of the work of the Messiah. Now, even though in other ages it had not been fully understood by the sons of men, God had said in the Old Testament that the Messiah or his anointed one would bring salvation to the Gentiles also, but people then hadn't fully understood what he meant. It was God himself who'd uncovered this mystery for Paul, helping him to understand that it had always been his intention for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom through Jesus Christ. One example of this is a prophecy found in Isaiah 42 that speaks of the servant of the Lord. In other words, it speaks of the anointed one who was promised. In other words, the Messiah. In Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7, the prophet Isaiah quotes God as speaking to the Messiah. So what I want you to do is think of this as God the Father speaking to God the Son. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. So this servant of the Lord was going to be the covenant. He was going to be the agreement of peace between God and man. He would also be a light to the Gentiles. And Jesus himself said in John 8 verse 12 that he is the light of the world and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. God had spoken of this truth in the Old Testament, but it was largely hidden from those who'd studied the scriptures. Even Paul, as a good Pharisee, had studied them, but it was only once he came to faith in Jesus that God revealed the truth to him that the Gentiles were to come in. And to make that absolutely clear, Paul states in verse 6 exactly what the mystery was, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Do you see that there are three truths revealed here, and they are that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs, they would be of the same body, and they would be partakers of his promises in the Messiah. In other words, the Gentiles would be fellow participants with the Jews in the riches of God the Father. They would be united as one body with all who believed, and they would be joint participants in the promises of God. All of this, of course, would be in Christ and through the gospel, or through the good news about their salvation. 
Paul had become a minister of that truth by the kindness of God, who called him to minister especially to the Gentiles. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effective working of his power. Now, I really hope that we can take hold of what he says here. God's choice of Paul was a gift of grace. It was all accomplished through the effective working of God's power. And you know, the same is true for each of us. When God calls us to a work, it is by grace, not because we've done anything to deserve it or because we're better than other people. No, it's because he is merciful and kind. But we also have to remember that he doesn't expect us to do things in our own power either. We're not called to do things for God, rather we're called to allow God to do work through us. You see, God equips those he calls, and if he's called you to a task, he will provide the empowerment for you to do it. What I love about God is that he has really low standards for the people that he will use. I mean, look at me, for example. I was born in the middle of nowhere in a very small village in Zambia, Africa. Now, most people have never even heard of the place. In fact, when I looked for my hometown on a map, even and I had trouble finding it. For God, though, to bring me all this way after all these years and give me a ministry in the United States and around the world, that is amazing to me. I never went to Bible college either, but I was willing to spend time in his presence studying his word hour after hour. God is a God who speaks and the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. One of the greatest encouragements to me as I studied the scriptures is that God called Peter and John, who were ordinary fishermen, to speak for him. And they did so with boldness, but they were dependent on his power. One of my favorite verses is Acts 4.13, when the religious leaders heard them speaking, we're told, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, the world would have picked the brightest, most well-trained scholars, but Jesus picked fishermen. Why? Because they were willing to spend time in his presence and to learn from him. When God uses nobodies like Peter or John, when he uses a nobody like me, then the glory really does go to him because it's not about an individual's cleverness or their qualifications. If you think about it, the world probably would not have picked Paul to minister to the Gentiles either because him being a Jew of Jews and coming out of Pharisaism, it just didn't seem to go together. Mind you, I'm not sure that the Christians would have chosen him either, but he was the one that God chose. And that's what it was. It it proved the truth of God's grace, the truth of the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a life. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to emphasize. He says that it was revealed to him that the Gentiles would be brought into the family of God through the gospel of Christ. And then verse 7 
of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ." Paul sees himself not as the greatest, but rather as the least of all of God's people. And he states that to emphasize what grace really is. You see, God chose him of all people to preach to the Gentiles. And the message was that in Christ, God could also choose them. Paul referred elsewhere to the grace that God had shown in picking him, explaining in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul had originally been journeying to Damascus to persecute the church there when he saw the risen Lord and that encounter changed his life. Compared to the other disciples, he did not feel that he deserved to be called an apostle, a sent out one of Christ. But the fact that he was really proved the grace of God. It proved that no one is too far from the Lord for him to reach and no one's deeds are too terrible for him to forgive. And you know, that's a wonderful encouragement for you and me because irrespective of how far we've strayed or what we've done, none of us are too far for him to reach and none of us are too wicked for him to redeem. Even a man like Paul could be transformed and given an eternal purpose in Christ. As Jesus himself said to Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, that those who are forgiven much love much and that's exactly what Paul had shown by the power of grace at work within him. Well, let's go back to our text in Ephesians 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ." By grace, Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles about God's riches hidden in Christ from the beginning of the ages. It had always been God's plan that reconciliation would come through Jesus. Paul's task was to help people understand that in Christ, people from every tribe and every tongue can be redeemed. And it was the Creator's intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And according to verse 11, God's eternal purpose was to accomplish in Christ our Lord what could not be accomplished any other way. But look at verse 10. To whom would God's plan be revealed and who would reveal it? It says, Now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So the church is going to make God's will plain. 
plain and they would make it plain to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Previously, the truth about salvation would be hidden from those principalities and powers, but who were they? Well, when we get to Ephesians 6 verse 12, we're going to learn that these principalities and powers that Paul speaks of are evil. For there he says that as Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we really have to understand that when Satan inspired the hearts of the religious leaders to kill Jesus, he thought he'd won. He thought he had derailed God's plan because he didn't understand it was through the death of Christ that mankind could be redeemed. The truth that the church lives out to our enemy's shame is found in Ephesians 3 verse 12, that because of what was accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, we now have confident access to the very throne room of God Most High. That's exactly what we're told in Hebrews 4 verse 16, that because of our high priest, Jesus Christ, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hallelujah! The way into God's presence was opened and the powers and principalities of this world were not expecting that to happen. When we really understand what was accomplished by the death of Christ, we can be encouraged no matter how difficult our circumstances are at the moment. And Paul says to them in verse 13, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul had said to them that he was a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. And now in verse 14, he gets back to that initial thought once again. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Well, it's been so long since he began. We really need to go back and refresh our minds as to what the reason was for him to kneel before the Father. If we look back into the end of Ephesians 2 verse 19, we'll Remember that it was because the Gentiles were no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that it was because they were being built together with Christ followers from a Jewish background to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It was for this reason that Paul bowed his knees to the Father. Right from the beginning of the church, kneeling became associated with prayer. In fact, James, who was the Bishop of Jerusalem, was on his knees in prayer for the people so much that they actually gave him the nickname Camel Knees because of the hard skin that developed from kneeling. So when Paul said that he bowed his knees to the Father, they would have understood it to mean that it was for this reason he prayed to the Lord. And what did Paul pray that God would grant to them? Verse 16, 
that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's request of God is that he would grant them certain things according to the riches of his glory. And that really is saying something much greater than perhaps we would imagine. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine that I am a billionaire, which of course I'm not. But if I gave a gift as a billionaire out of my riches, it could be anything. It could be a dollar, it could be $20. But if I give a gift according to my riches, it means that the size of the gift is in proportion to what I have. It's in keeping with the wealth that I have. So when Paul asks for God to do certain things According to his riches, he's asking God to give us abundantly according to his great wealth. And the first thing he asks for is that God's people would be strengthened within by the power of the Holy Spirit. The people of that time would have understood this phrase, the inner man, as applying to three different areas of life, to their reason, to their conscience, and to their will. In other words, Paul is asking that believers would be strengthened in their ability to know right from wrong. In other words, their reason. That they would be strengthened in their sensitivity to their conscience. That they would obey the commands of God. And also that they would be strengthened in their will so that they would choose the right path. And by strengthening the inner man in this way, it would affect how the outer man lived. Paul also asked God that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And interestingly, that word for dwell in the text doesn't only mean to inhabit or to live in. It also means to govern. So his request is really all about transformation, that Jesus would govern their hearts, that he would truly be Lord of their lives. And that is important for us even today. There are a lot of people who claim that Jesus is their savior, but you know they're not living as if he is their Lord. Paul wants us to catch the importance of this. Each of us will be different because Christ lives within us and he governs us. Paul also prays for them to be rooted and grounded in love, that they be firmly established, strengthened and secure in God's love. Now, really, this was not only his prayer for those in Ephesus, it is for all of God's people. God wants all of us to understand not only the width and the length, but also the depth and height of Christ's love. But let me tell you, this is something that cannot only be known with your head. It must be experienced with your heart. If you think of the ocean, you can only know its width and its length if you travel the expanse of it. You can only know its depth and its height if you get out of the boat and experience it. Now, if you've never seen the sea, um, you may 
really think that it would certainly be beyond your understanding. But how much more so the love of Christ, which Paul says passes all knowledge. But that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit within us to help us to come to know this great love of the Lord and to be filled with all the fullness of God. What amazes me here, though, is that Paul doesn't pray that they learn to love Christ more, but rather he prays that they would come to understand Christ's love for them in a deeper way. That is really amazing to me. It's not about loving him more. It's about knowing how much he loves us because understanding how much Christ loves you is what will truly change you. So many people are searching for so many things, and I think that's often the case even in the church. The person who doesn't truly know the love of Jesus is cast adrift. They're unstable in all that they do. Nothing ever really satisfies, and they're never complete. There's a hunger and an emptiness deep within the heart of man that cannot be satisfied without Jesus. I knew a man once who, at the expense of his marriage and his children, was fixated on becoming a millionaire. According to him, life would be great once he accomplished that goal. And do you know what? He did. I asked him after that, now that he'd fulfilled his dream, what was he planning to do next? To which he replied, earn my second million. You see, enough is never enough. That hole cannot be filled except with the fullness that only God can give that comes from knowing the width and length, the depth and height of his love. And that is only possible for those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You might wonder if the love of Christ passes knowledge, how is it possible to understand it? Well, take heart because of what Paul says next in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is not limited. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever imagine, beg for, or desire. He can help us understand this incredible love and be filled with it. And all of this is by his power that is operating or active within us. And this was not only for those in Ephesus, but according to verse 21, it is for all generations forever and ever. This is for you and me right now. So let's ask God to expand our expectations of him. Father God, I pray that we would not limit you, but that we would excitedly look to you supplying all our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, we would come to know your love in a greater and greater sense, and that that love would have the impact of transforming our lives, that we would serve you not out of some legal 
egalistic desire to earn points, but rather because we are so grateful for the way that you love us just as we are. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation in him. Thank you for making us new in Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.